Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Chapter 14. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Chapter 14. Defend thee, Lord. I paid three pennies for my breakfast, and a most extravagant price it was, too, seeing that one could have breakfast a dozen persons for that money. But I was feeling good by this time, and I had always been a kind of spendthrift anyway. And then these people had wanted to give me the food for nothing, scant as their provision was, and so it was a grateful pleasure to emphasize my appreciation and sincere thankfulness with a good big financial lift where the money would do so much more good than it would in my helmet, where, these pennies being made of iron and not stinted in weight, my half-dollar's worth was a good deal of a burden to me. I spent money rather too freely in those days, it is true, but one reason for it was that I hadn't got the proportions of things entirely adjusted even yet after so long a sojourn in Britain, hadn't got along to where I was able to absolutely realize that a penny in Arthur's land and a couple of dollars in Connecticut were about one and the same thing, just twins, as you may say, in purchasing power. If my start from Camelot could have been delayed a very few days, I could have paid these people in beautiful new coins from our own mint, and that would have pleased me, and them too, not less. I had adopted the American values exclusively. In a week or two now, cents, nickels, dimes, quarters, and half-dollars, and also a trifle of gold, would be trickling in thin but steady streams all through the commercial veins of the kingdom, and I looked to see this new blood freshen up its life. The farmers were bound to throw in something to sort of offset my liberality, whether I would or no, so I let them give me a flint and steel, and as soon as they had comfortably bestowed Sandy and me on our horse, I lit my pipe. When the first blast of smoke shot out through the bars of my helmet, all those people broke for the woods, and Sandy went over backwards and struck the ground with a dull thud. They thought I was one of those fire-belching dragons they had heard so much about from knights and other professional liars. I had infinite trouble to persuade those people to venture back within explaining distance. Then I told them that this was only a bit of enchantment which would work harm to none but my enemies, and I promised, with my hand on my heart, that if all who felt no enmity toward me would come forward and pass before me, they should see that only those who remained behind would be struck dead. The procession moved with a good deal of promptness. There were no casualties to report, for nobody had curiosity enough to remain behind to see what would happen. I lost some time now, for these big children, their fears gone, became so ravaged with wonder over my awe-compelling fireworks that I had to stay there and smoke a couple of pipes out before they would let me go. Still, the delay was not wholly unproductive, for it took all that time to get Sandy thoroughly wanted to the new thing, she being so close to it, you know. It plugged up her conversation mill, too, for a considerable while, and that was a gain. 
but above all other benefits accruing i had learned something i was ready for any giant or any ogre that might come along now we tarried with a holy hermit that night and my opportunity came about the middle of the next afternoon we were crossing a vast meadow by way of shortcut and i was musing absently hearing nothing seeing nothing when sandy suddenly interrupted a remark which she had begun that morning with a cry defend thee lord peril of life is toward and she slipped down from the horse and ran a little way and stood i looked up and saw far off in the shade of a tree half a dozen armed knights and their squires and straightway there was bustle among them and tightening of saddle girths for the mount my pipe was ready and would have been lit if i had not been lost in thinking about how to banish oppression from this land and restore to all its people their stolen rights and manhood without disobliging anybody i lit up at once and by the time i had got a good head of reserved steam on here they came all together too none of those chivalrous magnanimities which one reads so much about one courtly rascal at a time and the rest standing by to see fair play no they came in a body they came with a whirr and a rush they came like a volley from a battery came with heads low down plumes streaming out behind lances advanced at a level it was a handsome sight a beautiful sight for a man up a tree i laid my lance in rest and waited with my heart beating till the iron wave was just ready to break over me then spouted a column of white smoke through the bars of my helmet you should have seen the wave go to pieces and scatter this was a finer sight than the other one but these people stopped two or three hundred yards away and this troubled me my satisfaction collapsed and fear came i judged i was a lost man but sandy was radiant and was going to be eloquent but i stopped her and told her my magic had miscarried somehow or other and she must mount with all dispatch and we must ride for life no she wouldn't she said that my enchantment had disabled those knights they were not riding on because they couldn't wait they would drop out of their saddles presently and we would get their horses and harness i could not deceive such trusting simplicity so i said it was a mistake that when my fireworks killed at all they killed instantly no the men would not die there was something wrong about my apparatus i couldn't tell what but we must hurry and get away for those people would attack us again in a minute sandy laughed and said lack a day sir they be not of that breed sir lancelot will give battle to dragons and will abide by them and will assail them again and yet again and still again until he do conquer and destroy them and so likewise will sir pellinore and sir aglavale and sir carados and mayhap others but there be none else that will venture it let the idle say what the idle will and la as to yonder base rufflers think ye they have not their fill but yet desire more well then what are they waiting for why don't they leave nobody's hindering good land i'm willing to let bygones be bygones i'm sure leave is it oh give thyself easement as to that they dream not of it no not they they wait to yield them come really is that sooth as you people say if they want to why don't they it would like them much but an ye wot how dragons are esteemed ye would not hold them blamable they fear to come well then i suppose i go to them instead and ah wit ye well they would not abide your coming i will go and she did she was a handy person to have along on a raid 
I would have considered this a doubtful errand myself. I presently saw the knights riding away, and Sandy coming back. That was a relief. I judged she had somehow failed to get the first innings—I mean, in the conversation. Otherwise the interview wouldn't have been so short. But it turned out that she had managed the business well—in fact, admirably. She said that when she told those people I was the boss, it hit them where they lived. Smote them sore with fear and dread, was her word. And then they were ready to put up with anything she might require. So she swore them to appear at Arthur's court within two days, and yield them, with horse and harness, and be my knights henceforth, and subject to my command. How much better she managed that thing than I should have done it myself! She was a daisy! End of chapter 14 Chapter 15 this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter 15. Sandy's Tale. And so I'm proprietor of some knights, said I, as we rode off. Who would ever have supposed that I should live to list up assets of that sort? I shan't know what to do with them, unless I raffle them off. How many of them are there, Sandy? Seven, please you, sir, and their squires. It is a good haul. Who are they? Where do they hang out? Where do they hang out? Uh, yes, uh, where do they live? Ah, I understood thee not. That will I tell eftsoons. Then she said musingly and softly, turning the words daintily over her tongue, Hang they out, hang they out, where hang? Where do they hang out? Eh, right so. Where do they hang out? Of a truth the phrase hath a fair and winsome grace, and is prettily worded withal. I will repeat it anon and anon in mine eyeless, whereby I may peradventure learn it. Where do they hang out? Even so, already it falleth trippingly from my tongue, and forasmuch as— Don't forget the cowboys, Sandy. Cowboys? Yes, the knights, you know. You were going to tell me about them, a while back, you remember? Figuratively speaking, uh, games called— Game? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, go to the bat. I mean, get to work on your statistics. And don't burn so much kindling getting your fires started. Tell me about the knights. I will well, and lightly will begin. So they two departed, and rode into a great forest, and— Great Scott! You see, I recognized my mistake at once. I had set her works a-going. It was my own fault. She would be thirty days getting down to those facts, and she generally began without a preface and finished without a result. If you interrupted her, she would either go right along without noticing, or answer with a couple of words, and go back and say the sentence over again. So interruptions only did harm. And yet I had to interrupt, and interrupt pretty frequently, too, in order to save my life. A person would die if he let her monotony drip on him right along all day. "'Great Scott!' I said in my distress. She went right back, and began over again. "'So they two departed, and rode into a great forest, and—' "'Which two? "'Sir Gawain and Sir Ewaine. And so they came to an abbey of monks, and there were well lodged. So on the morn they heard their masses in the abbey, and so they rode forth till they came to a great forest. Then was Sir Gawain where in a valley by a turret of twelve fair damsels, and two knights armed on great horses, and the damsels went to and fro by a tree. 
and then was sir gawaine ware how there hung a white shield on that tree and ever as the damsels came by it they spit upon it and some threw mire upon the shield now if i hadn't seen the like myself in this country sandy i wouldn't believe it but i've seen it and i can just see those creatures now parading before that shield and acting like that the women here do certainly act like all possessed yes and i mean your best too society's very choicest brands the humblest hello-girl along ten thousand miles of wire could teach gentleness patience modesty manners to the highest duchess in arthur's land hello-girl yes uh, but don't you ask me to explain it's a new kind of girl they don't have them here one often speaks sharply to them when they are not the least in fault and he can't get over feeling sorry for it and ashamed of himself in thirteen hundred years it's such shabby mean conduct and so unprovoked the fact is no gentleman ever does it though i well i myself if i've got to confess peradventure she never mind her never mind her i tell you i couldn't ever explain her so you would understand even so be it sith ye are so minded then sir gawaine and sir ewaine went and saluted them and asked them why they did that despite to the shield sirs said the damsels we shall tell you there is a knight in this county that owneth this white shield and he is a passing good man of his hands but he hateth all ladies and gentlewomen and therefore we do all this despite to the shield i will say you said sir gawaine it beseemeth evil a good knight to despise all ladies and gentlewomen and peradventure though he hate you he hath some cause and peradventure he loveth in some other places ladies and gentlewomen and be loved again and he such a man of prowess as ye speak of man of prowess yes uh, that is the man to please them sandy man of brains that is a thing they never think of tom sayers john heenan john l sullivan pity but you could be here you would have your legs under the round table and sir in front of your names within the twenty-four hours and you could bring about a new distribution of the married princesses and duchesses of the court in another twenty-four the fact is it is just a sort of polished-up court of comanches and there isn't a squaw in it who doesn't stand ready at the dropping of a hat to desert to the buck with the biggest strings of scalps at his belt and he be such a man of prowess as ye speak of said sir gawaine now what is his name sir said they his name is marhaus the king's son of ireland son of the king of ireland you mean the other form doesn't mean anything and look out and hold on tight now we must jump this gully there we are all right now this horse belongs in a circus he is born before his time i know him well said sir ewaine he is a passing good knight as any is on live on live if you've got a fault in the world sandy it is that you are a shade too archaic uh, but it isn't any matter for i saw him once proved at a justs where many knights were gathered and that time there might no man withstand him ah said sir gawaine damsels methinketh ye are to blame for it is to suppose he that hung that shield there will not be long therefrom and then may those knights match him on horseback and that is more your worship than thus for i will abide no longer to see a knight's shield dishonored and therewith sir ewaine and sir gawaine departed a little from them and then were they where where sir marhaus came riding on a great horse straight toward them 
and when the twelve damsels saw Sir Marhaus, they fled into the turret as they were wild, so that some of them fell by the way. Then the one of the knights of the tower dressed his shield, and said on high, Sir Marhaus, defend thee! And so they ran together that the knight brake his spear on Marhaus, and Sir Marhaus smote him so hard that he brake his neck and the horse's back. Well, that is just the trouble about this state of things. It ruins so many horses. That saw the other knight of the turret, and dressed him toward Marhaus, and they went so eagerly together, that the knight of the turret was soon smitten down, horse and man, stark dead. Another horse gone. I tell you, it is a custom that ought to be broken up. I don't see how people with any feeling can applaud and support it. So these knights came together with great random—I saw that I had been asleep and missed a chapter. But I didn't say anything. I judged that the Irish knight was in trouble with the visitors by this time, and this turned out to be the case. That Sir Uwaine smote Sir Marhaus that his spear breast in pieces on the shield, and Sir Marhaus smote him so sore that horse and man he bare to the earth, and hurt Sir Uwaine on the left side. The truth is, Alessande, these archaics are a little too simple. The vocabulary is too limited, and so, by consequence, descriptions suffer in the matter of variety. They run too much to level Saharas of fact, and not enough to picturesque detail. This throws about them a certain air of the monotonous. In fact, the fights are all alike. A couple of people come together with great random—random is a good word— and so is exegesis, for that matter, and, and so is holocaust, and defalcation, and usufruct, and a hundred others. But land! A body ought to discriminate. They come together with great random, and a spear is brassed, and one party break his shield, and the other one goes down, horse and man, over his horse-tail, and break his neck, and then the next candidate comes randoming in, and brassed his spear, and the other man brassed his shield, and down he goes, horse and man, over his horse-tail, and break his neck, and then there's another elected, and another, and another, and still another, till the material is all used up. And when you come to figure up results, you can't tell one fight from another, nor who whipped. And as a picture of living, raging, roaring battle, show why, it's pale and noiseless, just ghosts scuffling in a fog. Dear me, what would this barren vocabulary get out of the mightiest spectacle? The burning of Rome in Nero's time, for instance. Why, it would merely say, Towns burned down, no insurance, boy brast a window, fireman break his neck. Why, that ain't a picture. It was a good deal of a lecture, I thought, but it didn't disturb Sandy, didn't turn a feather. Her steam soared steadily up again the minute I took off the lid. Then Sir Marhas turned his horse and rode toward Gawain with his spear. And when Sir Gawain saw that, he dressed his shield, and they adventured their spears, and they came together with all the might of their horses, that either knight smote other so hard in the midst of their shields. But Sir Gawain's spear brake, I knew it would, but Sir Marhaus's spear held, and therewith Sir Gawain and his horse rushed down to the earth, just so, and brake his back. And lightly Sir Gawain rose upon his feet, and pulled out his sword, and dressed him toward Sir Marhaus on foot, 
and therewith either came unto other eagerly and smote together with their swords that their shields flew in cantels and they bruised their helms and their hauberks and wounded either other but sir gawaine fro it past nine of the clock waxed by the space of three hours ever stronger and stronger and thrice his might was increased all this espied sir marhaus and had great wonder how his might increased and so they wounded other passing sore and then when it was come noon the pelting sing-song of it carried me forward to scenes and sounds of my boyhood days you haven ten minutes for refreshments Gndruckle strike the gong-bell two minutes before the train leaves passengers for the shore-line please take seats in the rear car this car don't go no farther apples oranges bananas sandwiches popcorn and waxed past noon and drew toward evensong sir gawaine's strength feebled and waxed passing faint that unethus he might dure any longer and sir marhaus was then bigger and bigger which strained his armor of course and yet little would one of these people mind a small thing like that and so sir knight said sir marhaus i have well felt that year a passing good knight and a marvellous man of might as ever if i felt any while it lasteth and our quarrels are not great and therefore it were a pity to do you hurt for i feel you are passing feeble ah said sir gawaine gentle knight ye say the word that i should say and therewith they took off their helms and either kissed other and there they swore together either to love other as brethren but i lost the thread there and dozed off to slumber thinking about what a pity it was that men with such superb strength strength enabling them to stand up cased in cruelly burdensome iron and drenched with perspiration and hack and batter and bang each other for six hours on a stretch should not have been born at a time when they could put it to some useful purpose take a jackass for instance a jackass has that kind of strength and puts it to a useful purpose and is valuable to this world because he is a jackass but a nobleman is not valuable because he is a jackass it is a mixture that is always ineffectual and should never have been attempted in the first place and yet once you start a mistake the trouble is done and you never know what is going to come of it when i came to myself again and began to listen i perceived that i had lost another chapter and that alisande had wandered a long way off with her people and so they rode and came into a deep valley full of stones and thereby they saw a fair stream of water above thereby was the head of the stream a fair fountain and three damsels sitting thereby in this country said sir marhaus came never knight since it was christened but he found strange adventures this is not good form alisande sir marhaus the king's son of ireland talks like all the rest you ought to give him a brogue or at least a characteristic expletive by this means one would recognize him as soon as he spoke without his ever being named it is a common literary device with the great authors you should make him say in this country be jabbers came never knight since it was christened and he found strange adventures be jabbers you see how much better that sounds came never knight but he found strange adventures be jabbers of a truth it doth indeed fair lord albeit tis passing hard to say though peradventure that will not tarry but better speed with usage and then they rode to the damsels 
and either saluted other, and the eldest had a garland of gold about her head, and she was threescore winter of age or more. The damsel was? Even so, dear lord, and her hair was white under the garland. Celluloid teeth, nine dollars a set, as like as not, the loose-fit kind that go up and down like a portcullis when you eat, and fall out when you laugh. The second damsel was of thirty winter of age, with a circlet of gold about her head. The third damsel was but fifteen years of age. Billows of thought came rolling over my soul, and the voice faded out of my hearing. Fifteen. Break, my heart. Oh, my lost darling! Just her age, who was so gentle and lovely, and all the world to me, and whom I shall never see again! How the thought of her carries me back over wide seas of memory, to a vague, dim time, a happy time, so many, many centuries hence, when I used to wake in the soft summer mornings out of the sweet dreams of her, and say, "'Hello, Central!' just to hear her dear voice come melting back to me with a, "'Hello, Hank!' That was music of the spheres to my enchanted ear. She got three dollars a week but she was worth it. I could not follow Alessand's further explanation of who our captured knights were now, I mean in case she should ever get to explaining who they were. My interest was gone, my thoughts were far away and sad. By fitful glimpses of the drifting tale, caught here and there and now and then, I merely noted in a vague way that each of these three knights took one of these three damsels up behind him on his horse and one rode north, another east, the other south to seek adventures, and meet again and lie after a year and day. Year and day, and without baggage. It was of a piece with the general simplicity of the country. The sun was now setting. It was about three in the afternoon when Alessandre had begun to tell me who the cowboys were, so she had made pretty good progress with it for her. She would arrive some time or other, no doubt, but she was not a person who could be hurried. We were approaching a castle which stood on high ground, a huge, strong, venerable structure whose grey towers and battlements were charmingly draped with ivy, and whose whole majestic mass was drenched with splendors flung from the sinking sun. It was the largest castle we had seen, and so I thought it might be the one we were after, but Sandy said no. She did not know who owned it. She said she had passed it without calling when she went down to Camelot. End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Chapter 16, Morgan Le Fay if knights-errant were to be believed, not all castles were desirable places to seek hospitality in. As a matter of fact, knights-errant were not persons to be believed, that is, measured by modern standards of veracity. Yet, measured by the standards of their own time, and scaled accordingly, you got the truth. It was very simple. You discounted a statement ninety-seven per cent. The rest was fact. Now, after making this allowance, the truth remained that if I could find out something about a castle before ringing the doorbell—I mean, hailing the warders—it was the sensible thing to do. 
so I was pleased when I saw in the distance a horseman making the bottom turn of the road that wound down from this castle. As we approached each other I saw that he wore a plumed helmet, and seemed to be otherwise clothed in steel, but bore a curious addition also, a stiff square garment like a herald's tabard. However, I had to smile at my own forgetfulness when I got nearer and read this sign on his tabard. Persimmon Soap! All the prima donna use it. That was a little idea of my own, and had several wholesome purposes in view toward the civilizing and uplifting of this nation. In the first place it was a furtive, underhand blow at this nonsense of knight-errantry, though nobody suspected that but me. I had started a number of these people out, the bravest knights I could get, each sandwiched between bulletin-boards bearing one device or another, and I judged that by and by, when they got to be numerous enough, they would begin to look ridiculous, and then even the steel-clad ass that hadn't any board would himself begin to look ridiculous, because he was out of the fashion. Secondly, these missionaries would gradually, and without creating suspicion or exciting alarm, introduce a rudimentary cleanliness among the nobility, and from them it would work down to the people, if the priests could be kept quiet. This would undermine the church, I mean, would be a step toward that. Next, education. Next, freedom. And then she would begin to crumble. It being my conviction that any established church is an established crime, an established slave pen, I had no scruples, but was willing to assail it in any way or with any weapon that promised to hurt it. Why, in my own former day, in remote centuries not yet stirring in the womb of time, there were old English men who imagined that they had been born in a free country, a free country with the Corporation Act and the tests still in force in it, timbers propped against men's liberties and dishonored consciences to shore up an established anachronism with. My missionaries were taught to spell out the gilt signs on their tabards. The showy gilding was a neat idea. I could have got the king to wear a bulletin-board for the sake of that barbaric splendor. They were to spell out these signs, and then explain to the lords and ladies what soap was, and if the lords and ladies were afraid of it, get them to try it on a dog. The missionary's next move was to get the family together and try it on himself. He was to stop at no experiment, however desperate, that could convince the nobility that soap was harmless. If any final doubt remained, he must catch a hermit. The woods were full of them. Saints they called themselves, and saints they were believed to be. They were unspeakably holy, and worked miracles, and everybody stood in awe of them. If a hermit could survive a wash, and that failed to convince the duke, give him up, let him alone. Whenever my missionaries overcame a knight-errant on the road, they washed him, and when he got well they swore him to go and get a bulletin-board and disseminate soap and civilization the rest of his days. As a consequence, the workers in the field were increasing by degrees, and the reform was steadily spreading. My soap factory felt the strain early. At first I had only two hands, but before I had left home I was already employing fifteen, and running night and day, and the atmospheric result was getting so pronounced that the king went sort of fainting and gasping around, and said he did not believe he could stand it much longer, and Sir Lancelot got so that he did hardly anything but walk up and down the roof and swear, 
although I told him it was worse up there than anywhere else, but he said he wanted plenty of air, and he was always complaining that a palace was no place for a soap factory anyway, and said if a man was to start one in his house he would be damned if he wouldn't strangle him. There were ladies present, too, but much these people ever cared for that. They could swear before children, if the wind was their way when the factory was going. This missionary knight's name was Lacote Maltale, and he said that his castle was the abode of Morgan le Fay, sister of King Arthur, and wife of King Uriens, monarch of a realm about as big as the District of Columbia. You could stand in the middle of it and throw bricks into the next kingdom. Kings and kingdoms were as thick in Britain as they had been in little Palestine in Joshua's time, when people had to sleep with their knees pulled up because they couldn't stretch out without a passport. Lacote was much depressed, for he had scored here the worst failure of his campaign. He had not worked off a cake. Yet he had tried all the tricks of the trade, even to the washing of a hermit. But the hermit died. This was, indeed, a bad failure for this animal would now be dubbed a martyr, and would take his place among the saints of the Roman calendar. Thus made he his moan, this poor Sir Lacote Maltale, and sorrowed passing sore. And so my heart bled for him, and I was moved to comfort and stay him. Wherefore I said, Forbear to grieve, fair knight, for this is not a defeat. We have brains, you and I, and for such as have brains there are no defeats but only victories. Observe how we will turn this seeming disaster into an advertisement, an advertisement for our soap, and the biggest one to draw that was ever thought of, an advertisement that will transform that Mount Washington defeat into a Matterhorn victory. We will put on your bulletin board, patronized by the elect. How does that strike you? Verily, it is wonderfully bethought. Well, a body is bound to admit that for just a modest little one-line ad, it's a corker. So the poor coal-porter's grief vanished away. He was a brave fellow, and had done mighty feats of arms in his time. His chief celebrity rested upon the events of an excursion like this one of mine, which he had once made with a damsel named Maledissant, who was as handy with her tongue as was Sandy though in a different way, for her tongue churned forth only railings and insult, whereas Sandy's music was of a kindlier sort. I knew his story well, and so I knew how to interpret the compassion that was in his face when he bade me farewell. He supposed I was having a bitter hard time of it. Sandy and I discussed his story as we rode along, and she said that Lacote's bad luck had begun with the very beginning of that trip for the king's fool had overthrown him on the first day, and in such cases it was customary for the girl to desert to the conqueror, but Maledissant didn't do it, and also persisted afterward in sticking to him after all his defeats. But, said I, suppose the victor should decline to accept his spoil. She said that that wouldn't answer, he must. He couldn't decline, it wouldn't be regular. I made a note of that. If Sandy's music got to be too burdensome some time, I would let a knight defeat me, on the chance that she would desert to him. In due time we were challenged by the warders from the castle walls, and after a parley admitted. I have nothing pleasant to tell about that visit, but it was not a disappointment, for I knew Mrs. Le Fay by reputation, and was not expecting anything pleasant. 
she was held in awe by the whole realm for she had made everybody believe she was a great sorceress all her ways were wicked all her instincts devilish she was loaded to the eyelids with cold malice all her history was black with crime and among her crimes murder was common i was most curious to see her as curious as i could have been to see satan to my surprise she was beautiful black thoughts had failed to make her expression repulsive age had failed to wrinkle her satin skin or mar its bloomy freshness she could have passed for old urien's granddaughter she could have been mistaken for a sister to her own son as soon as we were fairly within the castle gates we were ordered into her presence king urien's was there a kind-faced old man with a subdued look and also the son sir uwaine le blanchemains in whom i was of course interested on account of the tradition that he had once done battle with thirty knights and also on account of his trip with sir gawaine and sir marhaus which sandy had been aging me with but morgan was the main attraction the conspicuous personality here she was head chief of this household and that was plain she caused us to be seated and then she began with all manner of pretty graces and graciousness to ask me questions dear me it was like a bird or a flute or something talking i felt persuaded that this woman must have been misrepresented lied about she trilled along and trilled along and presently a handsome young page clothed like the rainbow and as easy and undulatory of movement as a wave came with something on a golden slalver and kneeling to present it to her overdid his graces and lost his balance and so fell lightly against her knee she slipped a dirk into him in as matter-of-fact a way as another person would have harpooned a rat poor child he slumped to the floor twisted his silken limbs in one great straining contortion of pain and was dead out of the old king was wrung an involuntary oh of compassion the look he got made him cut it suddenly short and not put any more hyphens in it sir uwaine at a sign from his mother went to the ante-room and called some servants and meanwhile madame went rippling sweetly along with her talk i saw that she was a good housekeeper for while she talked she kept a corner of her eye on the servants to see that they made no balks in handling the body and getting it out when they came with fresh clean towels she sent back for the other kind and when they had finished wiping the floor and were going she indicated a crimson fleck the size of a tear which their duller eyes had overlooked it was plain to me that la cote maltaile had failed to see the mistress of the house often how louder and clearer than any tongue does dumb circumstantial evidence speak morgan le fay rippled along as musically as ever marvellous woman and what a glance she had when it fell in reproof upon those servants they shrunk and quailed as timid people do when the lightning flashes out of a cloud i could have got the habit myself it was the same with that poor old brer urian's he was always on the ragged edge of apprehension she could not even turn toward him but he winced in the midst of the talk i let drop a complimentary word about king arthur forgetting for the moment how this woman hated her brother that one little compliment was enough she clouded up like storm she called for her guards and said hail me these varlets to the dungeons that struck cold on my ears for her dungeons had a reputation nothing occurred to me to say or do but not so with sandy 
as the guard laid a hand upon me she piped up with the tranquillest confidence and said god's wounds dost thou covet destruction thou maniac it is the boss now what a happy idea that was and so simple yet it would never have occurred to me i was born modest not all over but in spots and this was one of the spots the effect upon madame was electrical it cleared her countenance and brought back her smiles and all her persuasive graces and blandishments but nevertheless she was not able to entirely cover up with them the fact that she was in a ghastly fright she said la but do list to thine handmaid as if one gifted with powers like to mine might say the thing which i have said unto one who has vanquished merlin and not be jesting by mine enchantments i foresaw your coming and by them i knew you when you entered here i did but play this little jest with hope to surprise you into some display of your art as not doubting you would blast the guards with occult fires consuming them to ashes on the spot a marvel much beyond mine own ability yet one which i have long been childishly curious to see the guards were less curious and got out as soon as they got permission End of chapter 16chapter seventeen this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit LibriVox.org. a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court by mark twain chapter seventeen a royal banquet madame seeing me pacific and unresentful no doubt judged that i was deceived by her excuse for her fright dissolved away and she was soon so importunate to have me give an exhibition and kill somebody that the thing grew to be embarrassing however to my relief she was presently interrupted by the call to prayers i will say this much for the nobility that tyrannical murderous rapacious and morally rotten as they were they were deeply and enthusiastically religious nothing could divert them from the regular and faithful performance of the pieties enjoined by the church more than once i had seen a noble who had gotten his enemy at a disadvantage stop to pray before cutting his throat more than once i had seen a noble after ambushing and dispatching his enemy retire to the nearest wayside shrine and humbly give thanks without even waiting to rob the body there was to be nothing finer or sweeter in the life of even benvenuto cellini that rough-hewn saint ten centuries later all the nobles of britain with their families attended divine service morning and night daily in their private chapels and even the worst of them had family worship five or six times a day besides the credit of this belonged entirely to the church although i was no friend of that catholic church i was obliged to admit this and often in spite of me i found myself saying what would this country be without the church after prayers we had dinner in a great banqueting hall which was lighted by hundreds of grease jets and everything was as fine and lavish and rudely splendid as might become the royal degree of the hosts at the head of the hall on a dais was the table of the king queen and their son prince Uwain stretching down the hall from this was the general table on the floor at this above the salt sat the visiting nobles and the grown members of their families of both sexes the resident court in effect sixty-one persons 
below the salt sat minor officers of the household with their principal subordinates altogether a hundred and eighteen persons sitting and about as many liveried servants standing behind their chairs or serving in one capacity or another it was a very fine show in a gallery a band with cymbals horns harps and other horrors opened the proceedings with what seemed to be the crude first draft or original agony of the wail known to later centuries as in the sweet by and by it was new and ought to have been rehearsed a little more for some reason or other the queen had the composer hanged after dinner after this music the priest who stood behind the royal table said a noble long grace in ostensible latin then the battalion of waiters broke away from their posts and darted rushed flew fetched and carried and the mighty feeding began no words anywhere but absorbing attention to business the rows of chops opened and shut in vast unison and the sound of it was like to the muffled burr of subterranean machinery the havoc continued an hour and a half and unimaginable was the destruction of substantials of the chief feature of the feast the huge wild boar that lay stretched out so portly and imposing at the start nothing was left but the semblance of a hoop-skirt and he was but the type and symbol of what had happened to all the other dishes with the pastries and so on the heavy drinking began and the talk gallon after gallon of wine and mead disappeared and everybody got comfortable then happy then sparklingly joyous both sexes and by and by pretty noisy men told anecdotes that were terrific to hear but nobody blushed and when the nub was sprung the assemblage let go with a hoarse laugh that shook the fortress ladies answered back with historiettes that would almost have made queen margaret of navarre or even the great elizabeth of england hide behind a handkerchief but nobody hid here but only laughed howled you may say in pretty much all of these dreadful stories ecclesiastics were the hardy heroes but that didn't worry the chaplain any he had his laugh with the rest more than that upon invitation he roared out a song which was of as daring a sort as any that was sung that night by midnight everybody was fagged out and sore with laughing and as a rule drunk some weepingly some affectionately some hilariously some quarrelsomely some dead and under the table of the ladies the worst spectacle was a lovely young duchess whose wedding eve this was and indeed she was a spectacle sure enough just as she was she could have sat in advance for the portrait of the young daughter of the regent d'orleans at the famous dinner whence she was carried foul-mouthed intoxicated and helpless to her bed in the lost and lamented days of the ancien regime suddenly even while the priest was lifting his hands and all conscious heads were bowed in reverent expectation of the coming blessing there appeared under the arch of the far-off door at the bottom of the hall an old and bent and white-haired lady leaning upon a crutch-stick and she lifted the stick and pointed it toward the queen and cried out the wrath and curse of god fall upon you woman without pity who have slain mine innocent grandchild and made desolate this old heart that had nor chick nor friend nor stay nor comfort in all this world but him everybody crossed himself in a grisly fright for a curse was an awful thing to those people but the queen rose up majestic with the death light in her eye and flung back this ruthless command lay hands on her to the stake with her 
the guards left their posts to obey it was a shame it was a cruel thing to see what could be done sandy gave me a look i knew she had another inspiration i said do what you choose she was up and facing toward the queen in a moment she indicated me and said madam he saith this may not be recall the commandment or he will dissolve the castle and it shall vanish away like the instable fabric of a dream confound it what a crazy contract to pledge a person to what if the queen but my consternation subsided there and my panic passed off for the queen all in a collapse made no show of resistance but gave a countermanding sign and sunk into her seat when she reached it she was sober so were many of the others the assemblage rose whiffed ceremony to the winds and rushed for the door like a mob overturning chairs smashing crockery tugging struggling shouldering crowding anything to get out before i should change my mind and puff the castle into the measureless dim vacancies of space well 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 they were a superstitious lot it is all a body can do to conceive of it the poor queen was so scared and humbled that she was even afraid to hang the composer without first consulting me i was very sorry for her indeed any one would have been for she was really suffering so i was willing to do anything that was reasonable and had no desire to carry things to wanton extremities i therefore considered the matter thoughtfully and ended by having the musicians ordered into our presence to play that sweet by-and-by again which they did then i saw that she was right and gave her permission to hang the whole band this little relaxation of sternness had a good effect upon the queen a statesman gains little by the arbitrary exercise of iron-clad authority upon all occasions that offer for this wounds the just pride of his subordinates and thus tends to undermine his strength a little concession now and then where it can do no harm is the wiser policy now that the queen was at ease in her mind once more and measurably happy her wine naturally began to assert itself again and it got a little the start of her i mean it set her music going her silver bell of a tongue dear me she was a master talker it would not become me to suggest that it was pretty late and that i was a tired man and very sleepy i wished i had gone off to bed when i had the chance now i must stick it out there was no other way so she tinkled along and along in the otherwise profound and ghostly hush of the sleeping castle until by and by there came as if from deep down under us a far-away sound as of a muffled shriek with an expression of agony about it that made my flesh crawl the queen stopped and her eyes lighted with pleasure she tilted her graceful head as a bird does when it listens the sound bored its way up through the stillness again what is it i said it is truly a stubborn soul and endureth long it is many hours now endureth what the rack come ye shall see a blithe sight and he yield not his secret now ye shall see him torn asunder what a silky smooth hellion she was and so composed and serene when the cords all down my legs were hurting in sympathy with that man's pain conducted by mailed guards bearing flaring torches we tramped along echoing corridors and down stone stairways dank and dripping and smelling of mold and ages of imprisoned night a chill uncanny journey and a long one and not made the shorter or the cheerier by the sorceress's talk which was about this sufferer and his crime 
he had been accused by an anonymous informer of having killed a stag in the royal preserves i said anonymous testimony isn't just the right thing your highness it were fairer to confront the accused with the accuser i had not thought of that it being but of small consequence but an i would i could not for that the accuser came masked by night and told the forester and straightway got him hence again and so the forester knoweth him not then is this unknown the only person who saw the stag killed marry no man saw the killing but this unknown saw this hardy wretch near to the spot where the stag lay and came with right loyal zeal and betrayed him to the forester and so the unknown was near the dead stag too isn't it just possible that he did the killing himself his loyal zeal in a mask looks just a shade suspicious but what is your highness's idea for racking the prisoner where is the prophet he will not confess else and then were his soul lost for his crime his life is forfeited by the law and of a surety will i see that he payeth it but it were peril to my own soul to let him die unconfessed and unabsolved nay i were a fool to fling me into hell for his accommodation but your highness suppose he has nothing to confess as to that we shall see anon and i rack him to death and he confess not it will peradventure show that he had indeed naught to confess ye will grant that that is sooth then shall i not be damned for an unconfessed man that had naught to confess wherefore i shall be safe it was the stubborn unreasoning of the time it was useless to argue with her arguments have no chance against petrified training they wear it as little as the waves wear a cliff and her training was everybody's the brightest intellect in the land would not have been able to see that her position was defective as we entered the rack cell i caught a picture that will not go from me i wish it would a native young giant of thirty or thereabouts lay stretched upon the frame on his back with his wrists and ankles tied to ropes which led over windlasses at either end there was no color in him his features were contorted and set and sweat drops stood upon his forehead a priest bent over him on each side the executioner stood by guards were on duty smoking torches stood in sockets along the walls in a corner crouched a poor young creature her face drawn with anguish a half wild and hunted look in her eyes and in her lap lay a little child asleep just as we stepped across the threshold the executioner gave his machine a slight turn which wrung a cry from both the prisoner and the woman but i shouted and the executioner released the strain without waiting to see who spoke i could not let this horror go on it would have killed me to see it i asked the queen to let me clear the place and speak to the prisoner privately and when she was going to object i spoke in a low voice and said i did not want to make a scene before her servants but i must have my way for i was king arthur's representative and was speaking in his name she saw she had to yield i asked her to endorse me to these people and then leave me it was not pleasant for her but she took the pill and even went further than i was meaning to require i only wanted the backing of her own authority but she said ye will do in all things as this lord shall command it is the boss it was certainly a good word to conjure with you could see it by the squirming of these rats the queen's guards fell into line and she and they marched away with their torch-bearers and woke the echoes of the cavernous tunnels with the measured beat of their retreating footfalls 
I had the prisoner taken from the rack and placed upon his bed, and medicaments applied to his hurts, and wine given him to drink. The woman crept near and looked on, eagerly, lovingly, but timorously, like one who fears a repulse. Indeed, she tried furtively to touch the man's forehead, and jumped back, the picture of fright, when I turned unconsciously toward her. It was pitiful to see. "'Lord,' I said, "'stroke him, lass, if you want to. Do anything you're a mind to. Don't mind me.' Why, her eyes were as grateful as an animal's when you do it a kindness that it understands. The baby was out of her way, and she had her cheek against the man's in a minute, and her hands fondling his hair, and her happy tears running down. The man revived and caressed his wife with his eyes, which was all he could do. I judged I might clear the den now, and I did. Cleared it of all but the family and myself. And then I said, "'Now, my friend, tell me your side of this matter. I know the other side.' The man moved his head in a sign of refusal. But the woman looked pleased, as it seemed to me, pleased with my suggestion. I went on. "'You know of me?' "'Yes, all do in Arthur's realms. If my reputation has come to you right and straight, you should not be afraid to speak.' the woman broke in eagerly ah fair my lord do thou persuade him thou canst and thou wilt and he suffereth so and it is for me for me and how can i bear it i would i might see him die a sweet swift death oh my hugo i cannot bear this one and she fell to sobbing and grovelling about my feet and still imploring imploring what the man's death i could not quite get the bearings of the thing but hugo interrupted her and said peace ye wit not what ye ask shall i starve whom i love to win a gentle death i when thou knewest me better well said i i can't quite make this out it is a puzzle now ah dear my lord an ye will but persuade him consider how these his tortures wound me oh and he will not speak whereas the healing the solace that lie in a blessed swift death what are you maundering about He's going out from here a free man and whole. He's not going to die. The man's white face lit up, and the woman flung herself at me in a most surprising explosion of joy, and cried out, He is saved, for it is the king's word by the mouth of the king's servant, Arthur, the king whose word is gold. Well, then you do believe I can be trusted after all. Why didn't you before? Who doubted? Not I, indeed, and not she. Well— why wouldn't you tell me your story, then? Ye had made no promise, else had I been otherwise. I see, I see, and yet I believe I don't quite see, after all. You stood the torture and refused to confess, which shows plain enough to even the dullest understanding that you had nothing to confess. I, my lord? How so? It was I that killed the deer. You did? oh dear this is the most mixed-up business that ever dear lord i begged him on my knees to confess but you did it gets thicker and thicker what did you want him to do that for sith it would bring him a quick death and save him all this cruel pain well yes there is reason in that but he didn't want the quick death he why of a surety he did well then why in the world didn't he confess ah sweet sir and leave my wife and chick without bread and shelter oh heart of gold now i see it the bitter law takes the convicted man's estate and beggars his widow and his orphans they could torture you to death but without conviction or confession they could not rob your wife and baby you stood by them like a man and you true wife 
and the woman that you are you would have bought him release from torture at cost to yourself of slow starvation and death well it humbles a body to think what your sex can do when it comes to self-sacrifice i'll book you both for my colony you'll like it there it's a factory where i'm going to turn groping and grubbing automata into men end of chapter seventeen chapter eighteen this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit librivox dot org a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court by mark twain chapter eighteen in the queen's dungeons well i arranged all that and i had the man sent to his home i had a great desire to rack the executioner not because he was a good painstaking and pain-giving official for surely it was not to his discredit that he performed his functions well but to pay him back for wantonly cuffing and otherwise distressing that young woman the priests told me about this and were generously hot to have him punished something of this disagreeable sort was turning up every now and then i mean episodes that showed that not all priests were frauds and self-seekers but that many even the great majority of these that were down on the ground among the common people were sincere and right-hearted and devoted to the alleviation of human troubles and sufferings well it was a thing which could not be helped so i seldom fretted about it and never many minutes at a time it has never been my way to bother much about things which you can't cure but i did not like it for it was just the sort of thing to keep people reconciled to an established church we must have a religion it goes without saying but my idea is to have it cut up into forty free sects so that they will police each other as had been the case in the united states in my time concentration of power in a political machine is bad and an established church is only a political machine it was invented for that it is nursed cradled preserved for that it is an enemy to human liberty and does no good which it could not better do in a split-up and scattered condition that wasn't law it wasn't gospel it was only an opinion my opinion and i was only a man one man so it wasn't worth any more than the pope's or any less for that matter well i couldn't rack the executioner neither would i overlook the just complaint of the priests the man must be punished somehow or other so i degraded him from his office and made him leader of the band the new one that was to be started he begged hard and said he couldn't play a plausible excuse but too thin there wasn't a musician in the country that could the queen was a good deal outraged next morning when she found she was going to have neither hugo's life nor his property but i told her she must bear this cross that while by law and custom she certainly was entitled to both the man's life and his property there were extenuating circumstances and so in arthur the king's name i had pardoned him the deer was ravaging the man's fields and he had killed it in sudden passion and not for gain and he had carried it into the royal forest in the hope that that might make detection of the misdoer impossible confound her i couldn't make her see that sudden passion is an extenuating circumstance in the killing of venison or of a person so i gave it up and let her sulk it out i did think i was going to make her see it by remarking that her own sudden passion in the case of the page 
modified that crime crime she exclaimed how thou talkest crime forsooth man i am going to pay for him oh it was no use to waste sense on her training training is everything training is all there is to a person we speak of nature it is folly there is no such thing as nature what we call by that misleading name is merely heredity and training we have no thoughts of our own no opinions of our own they are transmitted to us trained into us all that is original in us and therefore fairly creditable or discreditable to us can be covered up and hidden by the point of a cambric needle all the rest being atoms contributed by and inherited from a procession of ancestors that stretches back a billion years to the adam clan or grasshopper or monkey from whom our race has been so tediously and ostentatiously and unprofitably developed and as for me all that i think about in this plodding sad pilgrimage this pathetic drift between the eternities is to look out and humbly live a pure and high and blameless life and save that one microscopic atom in me that is truly me the rest may land in sheol and welcome for all i care no confound her her intellect was good she had brains enough but her training made her an ass that is from a many centuries later point of view to kill the page was no crime it was her right and upon her right she stood serenely and unconscious of offence she was a result of generations of training in the unexamined and unassailed belief that the law which permitted her to kill a subject when she chose was a perfectly right and righteous one well we must give even satan his due she deserved a compliment for one thing and i tried to pay it but the words stuck in my throat she had a right to kill the boy but she was in no wise obliged to pay for him that was law for some other people but not for her she knew quite well that she was doing a large and generous thing to pay for that lad and that i ought in common fairness to come out with something handsome about it but i couldn't my mouth refused i couldn't help seeing in my fancy that poor old grandma with the broken heart and that fair young creature lying butchered his little silken pomps and vanities laced with his golden blood how could she pay for him whom could she pay and so well knowing that this woman trained as she had been deserved praise even adulation i was yet not able to utter it trained as i had been the best i could do was to fish up a compliment from outside so to speak and the pity of it was that it was true madam your people will adore you for this quite true but i meant to hang her for it some day if i lived some of those laws were too bad altogether too bad a master might kill his slave for nothing for mere spite malice or to pass the time just as we have seen that the crowned head could do it with his slave that is to say anybody a gentleman could kill a free commoner and pay for him cash or garden truck a noble could kill a noble without expense as far as the law was concerned but reprisals in kind were to be expected any body could kill somebody except the commoner and the slave these had no privileges if they killed it was murder and the law wouldn't stand murder 
it made short work of the experimenter and of his family too if he murdered somebody who belonged up among the ornamental ranks if a commoner gave a noble even so much as a damien's scratch which didn't kill or even hurt he got damien's dose for it just the same they pulled him to rags and tatters with horses and all the world came to see the show and crack jokes and have a good time and some of the performances of the best people present were as tough and as properly unprintable as any that have been printed by the pleasant casanova in his chapter about the dismemberment of louis the fifteenth's poor awkward enemy i had had enough of this grisly place by this time and wanted to leave but i couldn't because i had something on my mind that my conscience kept prodding me about and wouldn't let me forget if i had the remaking of man he wouldn't have any conscience it is one of the most disagreeable things connected with a person and although it certainly does a great deal of good it cannot be said to pay in the long run it would be much better to have less good and more comfort still this is only my opinion i am only one man others with less experience may think differently they have a right to their view i only stand to this i have noticed my conscience for many years and i know it is more trouble and bother to me than anything else i started with i suppose that in the beginning i prized it because we prize anything that is ours and yet how foolish it was to think so if we look at it in another way we see how absurd it is if i had an anvil in me would i prize it of course not and yet when you come to think there is no real difference between a conscience and an anvil i mean for comfort i have noticed it a thousand times and you could dissolve an anvil with acids when you couldn't stand it any longer but there isn't any way that you can work off a conscience at least so it will stay worked off not that i know of anyway there was something i wanted to do before leaving but it was a disagreeable matter and i hated to go at it well it bothered me all the morning i could have mentioned it to the old king but what would be the use he was but an extinct volcano he had been active in his time but his fire was out this good while he was only a stately ash pile now gentle enough and kindly enough for my purpose without doubt but not usable he was nothing this so-called king the queen was the only power there and she was a vesuvius as a favor she might consent to warm a flock of sparrows for you but then she might take that very opportunity to turn herself loose and bury a city however i reflected that as often as any other way when you are expecting the worst you get something that is not so bad after all so i braced up and placed my matter before her royal highness i said i had been having a general jail delivery at camelot and among neighboring castles and with her permission i would like to examine her collection her bric-a-brac that is to say her prisoners she resisted but i was expecting that but she finally consented i was expecting that too but not so soon that about ended my discomfort she called her guards and torches and we went down into the dungeons these were down under the castle's foundations and mainly were small cells hollowed out of the living rock some of these cells had no light at all in one of them was a woman in foul rags who sat on the ground and would not answer a question or speak a word but only looked up at us once or twice through a cobweb of tangled hair as if to see what casual thing it might be that was disturbing with sound and light 
the meaningless dull dream that was become her life. After that she sat bowed, with her dirt-caked fingers idly interlocked in her lap, and gave no further sign. This poor rack of bones was a woman of middle age, apparently, but only apparently. She had been there nine years, and was eighteen when she entered. She was a commoner, and had been sent here on her bridal night by Sir Bruce Sansepite, a neighboring lord whose vassal her father was, and to which said lord she had refused what has since been called le droit du seigneur, and, moreover, had opposed violence to violence, and spilt half a gill of his almost sacred blood. The young husband had interfered at that point, believing the bride's life in danger, and had flung the noble out into the midst of the humble and trembling wedding-guests in the parlour, and left him there astonished at this strange treatment, and implacably embittered against both bride and groom. The said lord, being cramped for dungeon-room, had asked the queen to accommodate his two criminals, and here in her Bastille they had been ever since. Hither, indeed, they had come before their crime was an hour old, and had never seen each other since. Here they were, kenneled like toads in the same rock. They had passed nine pitch-dark years within fifty feet of each other, yet neither knew whether the other was alive or not. All the first years their only question had been, asked with beseechings and tears that might have moved stones in time, perhaps, but hearts are not stones. Is he alive? Is she alive? But they had never got an answer, and at last that question was not asked any more, or any other. I wanted to see the man after hearing all this. He was thirty-four years old, and looked sixty. He sat upon a squared block of stone, with his head bent down, his forearms resting on his knees, his long hair hanging like a fringe before his face, and he was muttering to himself. He raised his chin, and looked us slowly over, in a listless, dull way, blinking with the distress of the torchlight, then dropped his head, and fell to muttering again, and took no further notice of us. There were some pathetically suggestive dumb witnesses present. On his wrists and ankles were cicatrices, old smooth scars, and fastened to the stone on which he sat was a chain with manacles and fetters attached. But this apparatus lay idle on the ground, and was thick with rust. Chains cease to be needed after the spirit has gone out of a prisoner. I could not rouse the man, so I said we would take him to her and see, to the bride who was the fairest thing in the earth to him once, roses, pearls, and dew-made flesh for him. A wonder-work, the master-work of nature, with eyes like no other eyes, and voice like no other voice, and a freshness and lithe young grace and beauty that belonged properly to the creatures of dreams, as he thought, and to no other. The sight of her would set his stagnant blood leaping, the sight of her. But it was a disappointment. They sat together on the ground, and looked dimly wondering into each other's faces a while, with a sort of weak animal curiosity, then forgot each other's presence, and dropped their eyes, and you saw that they were away again, and wandering in some far land of dreams and shadows that we know nothing about. I had them taken out and sent to their friends. The Queen did not like it much, not that she felt any personal interest in the matter, but she thought it disrespectful to Sir Breus Sansepite. However, I assured her that if he found he couldn't stand it, I would fix him so that he could. I set forty-seven prisoners loose out of those awful rat-holes, and left only one in captivity. He was a lord, and had killed another lord, a sort of kinsman of the queen. 
that other lord had ambushed him to assassinate him but this fellow had got the best of him and cut his throat however it was not for that that i left him jailed but for maliciously destroying the only public well in one of his wretched villages the queen was bound to hang him for killing her kinsman but i would not allow it it was no crime to kill an assassin but i said i was willing to let her hang him for destroying the well so she concluded to put up with that as it was better than nothing dear me for what trifling offences the most of those forty-seven men and women were shut up there indeed some were there for no distinct offence at all but only to gratify somebody's spite and not always the queen's by any means but a friend's the newest prisoner's crime was a mere remark which he had made he said he believed that men were about all alike and one man as good as another barring clothes he said he believed that if you were to strip the nation naked and send a stranger through the crowd he couldn't tell the king from a quack doctor nor a duke from a hotel clerk apparently here was a man whose brains had not been reduced to an ineffectual mush by idiotic training i set him loose and sent him to the factory some of the cells carved in the living rock were just behind the face of the precipice and in each of these an arrow-slit had been pierced outward to the daylight and so the captive had a thin ray from the blessed sun for his comfort the case of one of these poor fellows was particularly hard from his dusky swallows hole high up in that vast wall of native rock he could peer out through the arrow-slit and see his own home off yonder in the valley and for twenty-two years he had watched it with heartache and longing through that crack he could see the lights shine there at night and in the daytime he could see figures go in and come out his wife and children some of them no doubt though he could not make out at that distance in the course of years he noted festivities there and tried to rejoice and wondered if they were weddings or what they might be and he noted funerals and they wrung his heart he could make out the coffin but he could not determine its size and so could not tell whether it was wife or child he could see the procession form with priests and mourners and move solemnly away bearing the secret with them he had left behind him five children and a wife and in nineteen years he had seen five burials issue and none of them humble enough in pomp to denote a servant so he had lost five of his treasures there must still be one remaining one now infinitely unspeakably precious but which one wife or child that was the question that tortured him by night and by day asleep and awake well to have an interest of some sort and a half a ray of light when you are in a dungeon is a great support to the body and preserver of the intellect this man was in pretty good condition yet by the time he had finished telling me his distressful tale i was in the same state of mind that you would have been in yourself if you have got average human curiosity that is to say i was as burning up as he was to find out which member of the family it was that was left so i took him over home myself and an amazing kind of surprise party it was too typhoons and cyclones of frantic joy and whole niagaras of happy tears and by george we found the aforetime young matron graying toward the imminent verge of her half-century and the babies all men and women and some of them married and experimenting family-wise themselves for not a soul of the tribe was dead conceive of the ingenious devilishness of that queen she had a special hatred for this prisoner and she had invented all those funerals herself to scorch his heart with 
and the sublimest stroke of genius of the whole thing was leaving the family invoice a funeral short so as to let him wear his poor old soul out guessing but for me he never would have got out morgan le fay hated him with her whole heart and she never would have softened toward him and yet his crime was committed more in thoughtlessness than deliberate depravity he had said she had red hair well she had but that was no way to speak of it when red-headed people are above a certain social grade their hair is auburn consider it among these forty-seven captives there were five whose names offenses and dates of incarceration were no longer known one woman and four men all bent and wrinkled and mind extinguished patriarchs they themselves had long ago forgotten these details at any rate they had mere vague theories about them nothing definite and nothing that they repeated twice in the same way the succession of priests whose office it had been to pray daily with the captives and remind them that god had put them there for some wise purpose or other and teach them that patience humbleness and submission to oppression was what he loved to see in parties of a subordinate rank had traditions about these poor old human ruins but nothing more these traditions went but little way for they concerned the length of the incarceration only and not the names of the offences and even by the help of tradition the only thing that could be proven was that none of the five had seen daylight for thirty-five years how much longer this privation has lasted was not guessable the king and the queen knew nothing about these poor creatures except that they were heirlooms assets inherited along with the throne from the former firm nothing of their history had been transmitted with their persons and so the inheriting owners had considered them of no value and had felt no interest in them i said to the queen then why in the world didn't you set them free the question was a puzzler she didn't know why she hadn't the thing had never come up in her mind so here she was forecasting the veritable history of future prisoners of the castle deef without knowing it it seemed plain to me now that with her training those inherited prisoners were merely property nothing more nothing less well when we inherit property it does not occur to us to throw it away even when we do not value it when i brought my procession of human bats up into the open world and the glare of the afternoon sun previously blindfolding them in charity for eyes so long untortured by light they were a spectacle to look at skeletons scarecrows goblins pathetic frights every one legitimatest possible children of monarchy by the grace of god and the established church i muttered absently i wish i could photograph them you have seen that kind of people who will never let on that they don't know the meaning of a new big word the more ignorant they are the more pitifully certain they are to pretend you haven't shot over their heads the queen was just one of that sort and was always making the stupidest blunders by reason of it she hesitated a moment then her face brightened up with sudden comprehension and she said she would do it for me i thought to myself she why what can she know about photography but it was a poor time to be thinking when i looked around she was moving on the procession with an axe well she certainly was a curious one was morgan le fay i have seen a good many kinds of women in my time but she laid over them all for variety and how sharply characteristic of her this episode was 
she had no more idea than a horse of how to photograph her procession but being in doubt it was just like her to try to do it with an axe end of chapter 18、Chapter、19 Sandy and I were on the road again next morning, bright and early. It was so good to open up one's lungs and take in whole luscious barrels full of the blessed God's untainted, dew fashioned, woodland scented air once more, after suffocating body and mind for two days and nights in the moral and physical stenches of that intolerable old buzzard roost. I mean, for me. Of course, the place was all right and agreeable enough for Sandy. For she had been used to high life all her days. Poor girl, her jaws had had a wearisome rest now for a while, and I was expecting to get the consequences. I was right. But she had stood by me most helpfully in the castle, and had mightily supported and reinforced me with gigantic foolishnesses which were worth more for the occasion than wisdom double their size. So I thought she had earned a right to work her mill for a while, if she wanted to. And I felt not a pang when she started it up. Now turn we unto Sir Marhaus, that rode with the damsel of thirty winter of age southward. Are you going to see if you can work up another half stretch on the trail of the cowboys, Sandy? Even so, fair my lord. Go ahead, then. I won't interrupt this time, if I can help it. Begin over again. Start fair, and shake out all your reefs, and I will load my pipe and give good attention. Now turn we unto Sir Marhaus, that rode with a damsel of thirty winter of age southward. And so they came into a deep forest, and by fortune they were knighted, and rode along in a deep way, and at the last they came into a courtelage, where abode the Duke of South Marshes, and there they asked harbour. And on the morn the Duke sent unto Sir Marhaus, and bade him make him ready. And so Sir Marhaus arose and armed him. And there was a mass sung afore him, and he brake his fast, and so mounted on horseback in the court of the castle, there they should do the battle. So there was the duke already on horseback, clean armed, and his six sons by him, and every each had a spear in his hand, and so they encountered, whereas the duke and his two sons brake their spears upon him, but Sir Marhaus held up his spear and touched none of them. Then came the four sons by couples, and two of them brake their spears. And so did the other two, and all this while Sir Marhaus touched them not. Then Sir Marhaus ran to the duke, and smote him with his spear that horse and man fell to the earth, and so he served his sons. And then Sir Marhaus alight down, and bade the duke yield him, or else he would slay him. And then some of his sons recovered, and would have set upon Sir Marhaus. Then Sir Marhaus said to the duke, Cease thy sons, or else I will do the uttermost to you all. When the duke saw he might not escape the death, he cried to his sons and charged them to yield them to Sir Marhaus. And they kneeled all down and put the pommels of their swords to the knight, and so he received them. And then they hope up their father, and so by their common assent promised unto Sir Marhaus never to be foes unto King Arthur. And thereupon, at Whitsuntide after, to come he and his sons and put them in the king's grace. 
Footnote. The story is borrowed, language and all, from the Mort d'Arthur. M. T. Even so standeth the history, fair Sir Boss. Now ye shall wit that that very duke and his six sons are they whom but few days past you also did overcome and send to Arthur's court. Why, Sandy, you can't mean it. And I speak not sooth. Let it be the worse for me. Well, 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 now who would ever have thought it? One whole duke and six dukelets. Why, Sandy, it was an elegant hall. Knight-errantry is a most chuckle-headed trade, and it is tedious hard work, too, but I begin to see that there is money in it, after all, if you have luck. Not that I would ever engage in it as a business, for I wouldn't. No sound and legitimate business can be established on a basis of speculation. A successful whirl in the knight-errantry line. Now, what is it when you blow away the nonsense and come down to the cold facts? It's just a corner in pork, that's all, and you can't make anything else out of it. You're rich, yes, suddenly rich, for about a day, maybe a week. Then somebody corners the market on you, and down goes your bucket-shop. Ain't that so, Sandy? Whethersoever it be that my mind miscarrieth, bewraying simple language in such sort that the words do seem to come endlong and overthwart. There's no use in beating about the bush and trying to get around it that way, Sandy. It's so, just as I say. I know it's so. And, moreover, when you come right down to the bedrock, knight-errantry is worse than pork. For whatever happens, the pork's left, and so somebody's benefited anyway. But when the market breaks, in a knight-errantry world, and every knight in the pool passes in his checks, what have you got for assets? Just a rubbish pile of battered corpses and a barrel or two of busted hardware. Can you call those assets? Give me pork every time. Am I right? Ah, peradventure my head being distraught by the manifold matters whereunto the confusions of these but late adventured haps and fortunings whereby not I alone nor you alone, but every each of us, me seemeth— No, it's not your head, Sandy. Your head's all right, as far as it goes. But you don't know business. That's where the trouble is. It unfits you to argue about business, and you're wrong to be always trying. However, that aside, it was a good haul, anyway, and will breed a handsome crop of reputation in Arthur's court. And, speaking of the cowboys, what a curious country this is for women and men that never get old. Now there's Morgan Le Fay, as fresh and young as a Vassar pullet, to all appearances, and here is this old duke of the South Marches, still slashing away with sword and lance at his time of life, after raising such a family as he has raised. As I understand it, Sir Gawain killed seven of his sons, and still he had six left for Sir Marhaus and me to take into camp. And then there was that damsel of sixty winter of age still excursioning around in her frosty bloom. How old are you, Sandy? It was the first time I ever struck a still place in her. The mill had shut down for repairs, or something. End of chapter 19「Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for 129 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for 249 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.